Hello, and welcome to Switchbacks, a travel podcast where we reflect on our year visiting all 59 U.S. national parks. Whether you're planning to visit your very first park or you bleed gray and green, we're here to share our insights on exploring, understanding, and loving America's best idea. So thanks for tuning in. Today we're sharing two of our more challenging experiences in the parks and how trudging through some of the tougher things taught us about ourselves. Cole, do you realize that we're only four, I guess if you count this one, five podcasts away from covering all 59 national parks? Dang, we are hot stuff. I wouldn't go that far, ever. <laughs> <laughs> the Yeah, so it seems like just yesterday we started this podcast thing, and we are how many episodes in? This is episode 44. Wow. So that actually 45, 46, 47, 48. We'll be close to, to 50, to number to ending on number 50. Maybe we'll throw in an interview or a top 10 list still. Maybe we'll try to end on episode 50. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah, and then we got to figure out what's next. I know. If you guys have any suggestions, let us know. Um, We're going to be counting down. So we've got some cool topics to talk about, some some visitor experience topics, like ranger programs and visiting parks with kids, which we know we have pretty limited experience with, but we can guess – parks with friends we have a little better experience with yep so yeah and then kayaking uh and stuff like that you know just highlighting those last few parks we haven't gotten to yet so we've covered almost everything so if you are new to the podcast and looking for a national park going to visit a national park uh, check out our episode on whichever park it is on the way there because we've almost talked about them all now and it seems crazy and hopefully we won't skip three weeks like we've been doing lately yeah well we skipped two so you've got an you've got a night class on (laughs) excuse me on mondays that goes until 9 15 so it's pretty hard to squeeze it in afterwards and that's why we're recording this at 11.41 p.m., <laughs> which is going to make for a short night when I have to be back at school at 8 a.m. So should we get started? Yes, please. <laughs> All right. <coughs> Excuse me. Our Parks in the News is actual Parks in the News. What do you know? Parks have been in the news a lot lately. Yes. So I'm sure you've heard about the proposed park entrance fee increase that is set to to uh they're deciding on it within about a month it's set to start up in 2018 already um yeah we're not breaking news here this has been something that's been a hot topic in all the park park circles but we haven't commented on it yet um so we just wanted to chat about it and get our thoughts out there. There's a lot to dive into, but we'll hit it at a pretty high level for now without getting too philosophical, hopefully, but we'll share a bunch of facts 
and then we want to hear what you guys think too so don't be afraid to uh, send us your thoughts either voicemail on our website switchbackkids.com or um, any comments there too yes because we're not sure if we're right we have an opinion we're not sure if it's the correct opinion and i think you know things will come out and things will change and we might totally change our change our minds but here are the facts so this is going to affect 17 pop the most popular 17 most popular national parks the money is specifically going to be used to address visitor maintaining visitor services like inside the park so campgrounds parking lots restrooms things like that and um, specifically to address the 12 billion dollar maintenance backlog which has been just uh, something that the parks have been struggling with for a long time especially in the last few years with the the severe overcrowding in these popular national parks um so basically the fees are proposed to increase from whatever they're at now, which is about $25 to $30 for the most popular parks, to $70 for a car and increase up to $50 per motorcycle, $30 per pedestrian or cyclist. This only will take effect for five, the, most, the five most popular months during the year, so the peak season. The annual pass will stay the same at $80 for the year. Yeah, and then the top revenue for the parks, um, they will draw in 70% of the entrance fees. Um, so They do currently. Right, right. So that means that revenue from all 417 park sites would increase uh, 34%. So that is about... 34 million I was looking it up um, <laughs> do you need a minute I do need a minute just wait a second oh boy didn't do his research I had it here it's going to make a big impact for sure yeah and <laughs> still can't find still it still thinking still looking ah yes 70 million in additional park revenue. Okay. Um, so 70 million. We also know that the deferred maintenance backlog is approaching 12 billion for the parks. I just Okay. <laughs> you, were busy, you were busy looking up stuff. <laughs> yes. Uh, so anyway. Did you already also say that <laughs> 80% of the the entrance fees will go back into that park specifically. Yeah, so that's that's an act that was passed, I don't know how long ago. It's called the the something Land Enhancement Act where 80% of the entrance fee revenue has to go into that same park. Um 20% can go towards other national parks that don't charge an entrance fee, which by the way, 400 and, of our 417 park sites only 18 currently charge an entrance fee. 118. Only 118. Yeah, Did I not say that? You said 18. Okay. Only 118 currently charge any entrance fee. Uh, the rest are completely free. And there are 10 free days each year. Um, so also a couple other facts to throw out there. 
the uh, you know the cost of getting into Disney World for one person for one day it at Magic Kingdom is a hundred and twenty two dollars and then the average um, for an average trip that somebody takes to a national park like a family vacation only 1.5 percent of visitors overall trip expenditures are spent on entrance fees the vast majority is uh, made up of food lodging and travel according to an article i am just looking up on the chicago <laughs> tribune so if you couldn't tell we lean towards um this is a very okay thing for the parks to be doing Yes, I don't necessarily. I'm. We're not like celebrating it, so I don't think it's a it's a fortunate thing. I think it's an unfortunate necessity. I think right. it's it completely needs to happen. So obviously, we would rather that policies can change faster and more, and you know, fun more funding can be go- gone into the national parks because they already have such low funding, and they their their revenue has increased dramatically, and their funding has gone down if you adjust for inflation. Um, in the last, I don't know, 10, I think since 2005. So, But that funding but, is probably not going to go up in the near future. Right. It, we need a solution now. Right. We need an immediate solution. And I think that as much as people are worrying about this, it's not going to it's all i think it's a positive thing i don't know i say that with a question mark because i'm not totally sure but here's our here's our thinking a positive thing for three reasons number one the um the what are my three reasons (laughs) (laughs) do you have any (laughs) did you just say three because you thought that sounded like a good number? Yeah, of course. And then I was thinking, oh, I'm smart enough to just think I'll of think these about on, it the on, the fly. <laughs> on the way. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> no, three reasons. Number one, the parks need money. So $70 million, not a ton. It'll, it won't make a huge dent in that 11 to $12 billion deferred maintenance backlog, but it's something. It, uh, number two... It will dis de-incentive, disincentivize, de-incentivize. De- <laughs> yes. Uh, people from going to these most popular parks, and either go to them during the off season, or go to other parks that are just as good. We were talking with people just today about how Great Basin, right next to Zion National Park tiny tiny fraction of the visitors but just as good I mean, in, not in right many regards <laughs> okay it's kind of in the middle of nowhere but i i wrote an article about this one time or wrote about it somewhere but lassen volcanic which is about four hours away from yosemite receives 10 percent of the visitors Congaree, which is a few hours away from Great Smoky Mountains, receives 1% of the visitors uh, to great that Great Smoky Mountains does. So there are these national parks that are close to other ones and completely accessible, completely uncrowded. And the solution to this to this issue, to the to the fee increase issue and also to the overcrowding issue. And that those are the things that really the overcrowding is really 
I think what could benefit. Yeah, and that's even more to me. That is more important than um, than the extra money raised. You know, the extra seventy million raised by the fee hikes is incentivizing people to consider other times and other parks uh, for visiting. So we're not all crowding into one place and making a huge impact on the nature of a few select parks because these 17 most popular parks are the ones that obviously see the most people and get the most wear and tear every year. Uh, and then number three, of course, you got, num- <laughs> you got to three. Good job. Is um, that... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I forget. It's really late. You're really cute. That's number three. (laughs) No, there was a number three, and it's that... um... (laughs) It's right there. You got it. Oh. What were your number one and number two? Okay, number one, getting more money for the parks. Yes, and, and treating the overcrowding problem is number two. Treating the overcrowding problem is number two. And then number three is... It's okay. You don't have to have a number three. Those are the two biggest things I think that it addresses. I'm going to remember it in and the middle of the podcast. Maybe maybe it's that it encourages people to buy the annual pass. Yes, that was number three. Which is <laughs> yes. remaining at $80 for the year. Right. So if, if, you, if one entrance fee is $70, then maybe people want to purchase the annual pass at $80. And what purchasing the, the annual pass does is incentivize people to go to more national parks, which is a, a pro. So not only does it give, you know, an extra $10 <laughs> to the national parks, but it, it, it uh, encourages people to visit more national parks because now they're all free once you have the annual pass. Right. So feel like we've rambled on that enough. Yes, I've, but those are I've some forgotten, facts. I've forgotten enough points. It's okay. I, <laughs> so, I got you. I got you back. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's definitely worth talking about. And I know, I know that there are some downsides. There are big downsides. And the national parks, because the national parks are not Disney World. The national parks are more... We, we own them They're as public. people. They're yeah. public land. Treasures. It's not the same. You can't necessarily compare it to going on another vacation because it is so fundamental in our, you know, the makeup of our country. And so the enjoying the outdoors should be an experience that everyone can do. And the, one of the principles is that they should be accessible to everybody. So yes. we get the concern. You know, we, it's definitely something we want to, you know, keep our eye on. But, um, yeah, we and we understand that it's um, an emotional issue for people too. You know, uh, the government jacking up these rates in a lot of cases almost triple the um, triple what they were makes some pretty bad headlines, especially yeah. with the whole neglecting to fund them in the first place. Right, um, and we are, so, for the record, we're we're very wary of the overall agenda for the national parks right now we're we're worried guys (laughs) but we're also trying to look at each decision as it comes in as 
individual decisions. And I think this individual decision is a good thing. It's a necessary thing. It's not necessarily a good thing. It's not, it's not like a fun thing that we want to do. It's just, it's a necessary. Yeah, but we'd love to hear your thoughts. So send them on over and maybe we'll share some on the next episode. That'd be awesome. So let's get into our parks for this episode. Let's do it. We remember we're talking about challenging activities as our topic. And basically the overview here is it's good to push yourself. It's good to do something challenging and it's good to get out of your comfort zone. But a couple times during the year, we got to the very... Uh, limits of our uncomfort zone. Mm -hmm. So the first time that happened was during the first leg of our trip, about in the beginning of October. Park number 11, I believe. Yes, Park 11, Black Canyon of the Gunnison in western Colorado. Um, Yep, so our situation we got ourselves into, we decided to hike down into the canyon, which there are three or four routes um, from the south rim where we were. Not trails, routes. Routes. The the ranger definitely emphasized that. It's not a trail. It's a route, Um, which we saw. We we felt that. It's a 2.7-mile trail, 2.75-mile trail, um, and it descends 2,755 feet into the canyon. So it felt like so much more. Yeah, this is called the Warner route. Yes. Yeah. At the very end of the road, as you go all the way from the visitor center all the way along the canyon rim to the end of the road, this is where you leave for Warner route. Yeah, and it's one of the routes where you can backpack at the bottom. So we also, well, Cole also hiked the uh, something called the Gunnison route, which uh, I don't believe is the wilderness area, so I don't believe you can camp at the bottom. Right. I could be wrong about that. And that that one actually has a a rope that you can, a chain basically, that you can grab and lower yourself down the super steep um, incline. So this one didn't have a rope. This one was, it was the hardest downhill of my whole life. I slipped and fell completely wiped out like three or four times. It was basically just a super steep scree hill. And it was really slippery, and it kept, you know, the rocks kept falling out from under you. And fine, we 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 left in the evening. Sometime we didn't think it would be too much of a problem. It's only two, it's less than three miles, um, and it was all downhill, so we thought it would it wouldn't take us too long. <coughs> but little did we know. Um that many hours of sunlight left was not nearly enough when you are slipping and sliding and having to be very careful as you walk down. Yeah, so um, I feel like it took us like three... It, the, on the website, it says two to two and a half hours. I think it took us like three hours to get down because we had to go so slowly. We finally got down, set up our tent, ate dinner, and and everything was fine. We woke up. It was really, really cool. That was a... a benefit of this this challenge was it was super cool to wake up inside the canyon along the river and get to you know walk up and down a little bit and and it's kind of like I mean it's similar perspective to being inside the Grand Canyon it just feels so different than being up on the rim so then though 
came the task of hiking back out. Yeah, yeah, and it was, I would say, up to the point where we started to hike back out, it was very worth it to me. Going down was rough. You, yeah. you especially didn't like it because uh, I feel like you you were sliding and, and just not enjoying that, having uh, the a not solid ground yeah, under you at I any like point. Yeah, I like a little more control. Yeah, um, but the down at the bottom of the canyon was very pretty. It was, uh, you know, the, the canyon is so steep, the average grade of the Warner route is about 34 degrees, and the maximum grade is about 81 degrees. I just looked it up. Um, so that's the type of steep grade we're, we're talking about here. But when you're not on the trail in the bottom, that makes for a super cool view, like this really yeah. deep V of the canyon, the dark granite, uh, basically marbled with all sorts of designs on the canyon wall, the rushing and gurgling river next to you. The Gunnison River is just dropping super fast at this portion of the river. Um, uh, I think it's like eight feet per mile or something, or 25 feet per mile, which is 25 times more than the Mississippi River uh, drops. So it's dramatic. Yeah, this is a <laughs> dramatic uh, one for sure. So you were talking about morning. Now yes. we're now we're. So we woke up. We start climbing out. out of the canyon the way we came in the two point seven five mile route, which not well marked. First of all, no um, no carns even. No carns at all. Not we, very well traveled. But we knew where we were supposed to get on the rim. Yes. Like we could kind of tell that's the point we need to hit. Yes. So started hiking up. Fairly quickly, we lost the route. And it's so it didn't tough. take us very long to lose the route. Right. And you, for a while, we didn't even think we lost the route because you keep going up this. Um, I mean, it's they're all a, a social trail. So, like we said, no markings. And you keep going up uh, and you get to a branch and then you take what you think is the most traveled branch. And then you get to another branch and you take what you think is the best one. And eventually, <coughs> you are completely diverging from anything that was the real the real path. Uh, and on the, it's hard to know where you went wrong too. Yeah, because it looks like it can still look like the real route for a long time before you realize it's not. Yeah, and it was easier to get down. Much easier to get down there because there are fewer forks on the way down, <laughs> and you're just you know exactly what point, and it's kind of like a funnel on the way down. Yep. But on the way up, you're going out of that funnel yes and it's uh, basically we started heading towards a completely different direction of uh, a spot on the rim that we knew was not correct uh, and not the spot that we dropped in at yeah so we estimate that we hiked how much like four more like four or five miles that day yeah up out it was definitely the hardest of our lives at we but was here, it like six hours or something? To it took get... us a long time to get out. And remember, this is thing... 2.75 miles. Yes, this is nothing. The good thing is that we remembered, like Cole said, we remembered along the ridge, along the rim, where we had come in. So there was like a dip, and we knew we had to get back to that dip. So we kept we could keep our eyes on it and kind of work towards that. 
um, we finally got up pretty close to the to the ridge and we're just kind of working our way over. We had to do a little bit of bushwhacking and literally bushwhacking. Yeah. Like big po- pokey bushes. And also remember how we got to the rim, but we're on the completely opposite side of these huge columns of rock that were in our way and on either side of those were just sheer drops so we had to navigate around them along the rim really carefully Mm -hmm. um it it was just very interesting (coughs) and we and the whole way up was just a big scree field so that was another thing too is we had to be careful not to knock off um these big rocks Mm -hmm. and have them tumble down onto the person you know the one of us who is beneath yeah i will say it was really hard i never felt unsafe yeah i never felt like i was gonna fall i never felt like we were doing something dangerous so we always stayed safe we always really watched our step and went the safer route I never, even when we were kind of navigating around these big rocks, I never felt like we were going to fall. I never felt like even close to unsafe. I agree. It was more just very trying. And uh, by the end of it, we were wiped out. So um, we, we definitely had learned our lesson there. Beware of your surroundings. Uh, watch your landmarks when you hike. Always step carefully. You know, don't um, you know? Make sure of your footing, especially on these really dangerous, precarious scree fields, and take warnings seriously. This was one of the first times where we actually underestimated a uh, route or a trail, and the the rangers didn't necessarily over caution us yes which we were used to to be fair we had just come from arches where they over caution you about everything right because there's a lot more touristy um there's a lot more non-outdoorsy tourists there yep but i still maybe we would have taken it back at the time but i'm still glad we did it i'm glad we got down into the bottom of the canyon yeah now, there are some other ways to do that. So <laughs> let's talk about the other park highlights and kind of summarize our experience at Black Canyon of the Gunnison. Yeah, so one of them is just going along the overlooks because there's, like many of the canyon parks, there's a, uh, a scenic drive, drive, a scenic drive that goes along <laughs> the rim, and you can stop at all these overlooks and w- look at out at the, like, one of them's called the Painted Dragon or something um, overlook where it looks like a dragon's painted on the far wall. Okay. Um, I might... There's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and Just stop at all of them. It's easy when you're doing the scenic drive. In the winter, they, they actually close the scenic drive. They don't plow it, and you can, do, you can cross-country ski it. So that would be a really cool winter activity. Ooh, yeah. It's overall, it's a very off-the-beaten-path park, and that's one of my highlights about it. Just being there, knowing that not very many people see this park, not very many people have even heard of this park, yet it's this impressive canyon in the middle of Colorado. It's got the, the like, jaw, jaw-dropping factor. Yeah, it's so extreme. 
Um, <coughs> so Elizabeth mentioned the Gunnison route. That was another highlight for me. I got up early one morning and uh, kind of hiked down to the bottom on a different route and back up. It wasn't nearly as hard. It was and I much slept more. In. Yeah. That was nice. <laughs> much more trafficked. Um, then also we went down to the, the river kind of away from the main canyon channel. It's called East Portal. Yes. Thank you. So East Portal is a great area for fly fishing. So that's where we used our wet fly, uh, backpacking, uh, Tenkara, it's called rod. Tenkara is just a like Japanese style fly fishing, uh, apparatus. So that was a lot of fun, like gold, gold ribbon or gold medal or whatever their designation for fly fishing is. It's, it's gold something. Um, <laughs> it's just gold. Yeah. So that was really fun and new. And also, if you're into rock climbing, yes, gu- the Gunnison has some incredible, really hardcore yeah. rock climbing routes. Um, so yeah. And if you're not into rock climbing and if you're into cheap camping, it's got that too. Yes. $7. That was six. You, I think you're right. I'm pretty actually. sure it's six. $6 Cause per it was night. in the off season. The water no, was shut off. Yeah, no water, but they did have water 24 seven at the, at the visitor center. In the peak season, it's $12. I think it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. $12. Yeah. A whole $12. <laughs> So a great park, highly underrated, definitely off the beaten path, definitely worth exploring no matter what your level of activity is too because they're, the scenic drive with the overlooks is also super impressive, super amazing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Park number two, <laughs> the one and only Mammoth Cave. Which is actually the park that is closest to us here in St. Louis. Yeah, it's like our yeah. local home park, even yep. though it's still maybe six hours away. <laughs> yeah, That's we're... the closest we've got. Right. That's so, okay. That's all right. Piteous. Mammoth Cave is the longest cave system in the world. The next closest is about half the length, I think. It's in Mexico. But the... Mammoth Cave is giant. It's a giant cave system in Kentucky. When we visited, we did something very difficult. (laughs) It was a very challenging experience called the Wild Cave Tour. We decided to do this because we read some information on the internet, and it said it would be awesome. (laughs) And was it, Cole? It was awesome. (laughs) I have no regrets. I have some regrets. <laughs> so it was fine. Uh, it you was know, terrible, but it was. I'm glad I did it. <laughs> With all of these national park caves, Mammoth Cave, uh, Carlsbad Caverns, Lehman Cave, Wind Cave, Wind Cave. Thank you. They have a few different um, options for the tours you can do. So you know, of course, there's some family-friendly options where you just walk through their high-trafficked kind of cement path route, uh, and it's a pretty cool time. You see some good formations and stuff. But one of the things that Mammoth Cave has is something called the Wild Cave Tour. This is six hours, five miles, adults only. It's a, They vary the routes based on like the group 
guest's interest and the guide's interest. It's $55 a person. It's only held once a week. It's And it's deemed on the website extremely strenuous. And that is extremely true. Yeah. <laughs> extremely accurate. Again, this is something where we were a little caught off guard because we're used to the National Park Service uh, just over-cautioning visitors. And that was not the case at all for this one. They said, you know, your one of the regulations they have is that your body at any point can't be bigger than 42 inches and in circumference. And that is serious. Exactly true. Yeah. If yeah, just don't don't test it. Take it from us. Yes, there are other rules like you have to have high boots that lace up and that cover your ankles. You can't wear tennis shoes. You can't wear low hiking boots. So really plan ahead for this kind of thing. Um, again, it's only held once a week, so you, you'll have to plan ahead anyway. Way, I would say, pretty far out of my comfort zone. Not really that far out of your comfort zone. But you're basically, you're, you're not just walking through the cave. <laughs> you're mostly crawling, heavily army crawling on your stomach through water and like no space above your head yeah the one particular route that the rangers took us on this time was had it was kind of like the army crawling route and it had a quarter mile of pure crawling in a creek um you know an underground creek that was about six inches deep which doesn't seem that, well, 6 to 10, which doesn't seem that bad, but the whole um, height of the, of the thing is maybe two and a half feet. So you're crawling, army crawling in a space uh, two and a half feet high. Yeah. Right, one person right after another because there's right, the- maybe a dozen people and you're all in a single line. Mm-hmm. So you can't really go backward and forward. You're just following the person in front of you and that's the part that um took a lot of like deep breaths for me like I had to really get into the right headspace because of the people that because of the people in front of me and behind me if it was just a tunnel that I had to crawl through that doesn't bother me at all it's that I can't get out there's no way out and that's what really took a lot of like Closing my eyes and just knowing, like, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. Like, repeating that over and over again. I'm glad I did it. I will never do anything like that again. I'll just say that. (laughs) I learned something about myself. Yeah, and sometimes when you think about, you know, you are not just walking around on a path with a mile of pure rock above you. You are, like sandwiched in between these two rocks with about a a foot maybe of breathing room above you yeah and sometimes you know it's not just a tunnel it dips down and it juts out and there there are places where you have to duck your head and squeeze through and really squeeze your body through these different holes and it's you really feel like you're in the bowels yes (laughs) of the earth um, so beyond the, the crawling part, there were a couple other r- really interesting parts, like one called the bear hole, uh, where at the beginning, this is kind of like a test yourself, you know, a litmus test type um, 
type hole, I guess, where you are you have to crawl through this passageway and then you get to the hole that is essentially 42 inches in circumference and you have to squeeze through this but it's also at an uphill so you have to like turn yourself over and push yourself uphill so you can't just kind of use gravity to pull you through um, it takes a lot of maneuvering and we were with my parents actually and my sister um, because they live in Louisville, pretty close to Mammoth Cave. So they actually joined us for this cave, this park and this specific tour. And my dad is a little bigger chested guy and probably right around 42 inches. Well, he said he measured it later and it was exactly 42 inches. Yeah. And, uh, and he it took him about 15 minutes to get through that hole. Yeah. It was a long time. We had to be patient behind him. And but I fell for him. Yeah, for totally. Sure. So he <laughs> says he kind of cracked a rib, um, which I don't doubt because he really had to... The, the thing you actually have to do is, if you're really tight like that, uh, exhale so your chest compresses a little bit and then squeeze yourself through which is very counterintuitive exactly because you want to breathe so you can exert that effort but you actually have to basically empty yourself of breath and then exert a lot of effort to squeeze through girls wear very compressing sports bras (laughs) yeah my butt i feel like barely got through i mean it did It, it didn't take me very long but it was like for a second, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be stuck too. <laughs> the reason it's called the bear hole is not bear as in uh, grr, hibernation bear. It's bear as in bear chest, like going to rip your clothes off when you try to squeeze through bear. Yeah. So very difficult, the, very trying. Yeah. And then the other one other interesting part that um, I want to mention is besides all the crawling pieces, there was one part where they were taking us through uh, an area that had a kind of canyon almost drop off. Um, So you had to like squeeze along this ledge. And as you were squeezing your, your and shuffling along the ledge on one side, you had to lean over and kind of press your hands against the far wall so the the chasm was kind of dropping beneath you um but you were able to shuffle at an angle across the ledge and everybody that was, was terrifying also yeah it wasn't a huge chasm but it was definitely something well the first girl who went fell <laughs> yeah so you can imagine and she kind of hurt herself so you can imagine how terrified the rest of us were going through that and she was okay, but she kind of struggled for, and we kind of had to detour back a different way because she kind of fell weird. And you're not, you know, she didn't exactly follow the directions of the rangers of where to put her hands and where to put her feet. And so. Because she didn't trust, yeah, it was like she didn't trust her hands or the directions. So. So it was definitely, the, I mean, the rangers tried <laughs> to tell her, but anyway. So. I, she fell, and we were just like, the rest of us were pretty scared going through it, but it was fine, and nobody else fell. Yeah, so it was not um, for the faint of heart at all. Definitely not. 
but I learned some lessons. Yeah, I thought it was super cool. Take the difficulty labels seriously, even if you think you're too good for them, which sometimes we did too. Um, read reviews. I think that's where you sometimes you can get extra information. And we didn't really read a lot of reviews about this tour before we went. Um, we were we weren't unprepared, but we were maybe slightly underprepared. Make sure you follow all the regulations. Like forty two inches is forty two inches. And Cole's sister had to borrow an extra pair of Cole's boots because she didn't bring the right shoes. Things like that. Um, they do give you a headlamp and they do give you coveralls because this is a uh, white nose syndrome cave mm -hmm. and they don't want it spreading anywhere else. So they're very careful about uh, what clothes you wear and spraying you down and spraying your shoes down afterwards. Yep. Yep. Mammoth Cave, though, was a very cool national park. Really good park to visit in the winter because most of it's inside, which we yeah. visited in the middle of December. Um, it's got a great visitor center with and a museum with lots of information while you were waiting for your cave tour. We loved the... We went to the Domes and Dripstones tour, which was a basic, very easy, accessible tour, but it had a lot of more cave formations. We didn't see it ton of cave formations on the wild cave tour there were also a lot of hiking above ground which were pretty cool yeah and i definitely want to go back to <coughs> to float the river next um i don't know next summer maybe because there's some really good uh f pretty floats i think it's the green river maybe i think so yeah i think you're right so, so we'll have to go next time. Yeah. Mammoth Cave is one of those parks where you can, I feel like you can do it all in a day, or you can stretch it out and see so much more that the park has to offer. Mm-hmm. So those are the two big, two of the big challenges we had in the national parks. There were definitely other times um, where we were tested, maybe a little scared, but uh, you know, kind of look at, reflecting back uh, for this episode, there was no real time where we feared for our lives or really got stressed out. Um, so that was something good. You know, maybe it's because we were trying to always to be as prepared as possible, but mm -hmm. maybe it's just because we just got lucky and the national park gods were smiling on us. Um, either way, you know, always make sure you're prepared on your own trips. Definitely. All right. Well, now, before we end, we have a listener question. Hey, Switchbacks. This is Keith Patrick from Lubbock, Texas. I have been loving your podcast. I've been catching up recently. Uh, thank you so much for doing what you're doing and helping those of us that love the national parks continue to feed our addiction. Um, I had a couple of questions for you. One, I was wondering if there's any way that we can donate to you on the website. Would love to support what you're doing. Uh, help you guys out as much as I can because you certainly uh, do a lot for me in, in the blog and through the podcast. And then also, uh, being from Texas, we have a really strong state park system. Uh, Palo Duro Canyons, the second largest canyon in the U.S., places like Enchanted Rock, the largest pink granite dome in the U.S., some pretty neat places geologically and historically. I was just wondering if on your travels there were other places that you visited, like state parks, around the country that you thought were particularly special? I know you had talked about uh, other places in the national park system that you had enjoyed, but curious about state parks that are out there uh, or other things that you found uh, on the road. So anyway, thanks again for what you do. 
Uh, looking forward to hearing back and uh, have a great one. Thanks. All right. So we are super thankful for Keith to um, put, submit a question. You guys can all submit questions or comments. Um, switchbackkids.com slash podcast and just leave a click, leave a voicemail. Um, the first part of his question is something we've gotten from a few different people, but here is our response to donations. First of all, Keith, that is so nice of you. Oh, yes. Thank you <laughs> so much for the offer. Um, you know, it just makes makes us feel all warm and fuzzy. Yes. Um, it, just to know that people like us enough and value what we're doing enough to even think of that is really uh, flattering, and it's why we put so much effort into the blog, into the podcast, to share these parks, and um, it's because we want people to uh, enjoy it. Yes, absolutely. Um but be- because of the way that we like to do things, uh, we're not accepting any flat donations. What you can do is donate instead to the National Park Foundation or another official national park organization. If you go to each, if you're, you know, if you have a special home national park um, and you go to their national park NPS website, you can see which organizations are directly affiliated with them that are nonprofits. Um, so do that. Another way you can support us is um, buy our one of our ebooks from our website. We currently only have the 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 ones about Utah parks, but we're working on Alaska parks also right now. Um, and mostly, just keep listening and following along, and tell some friends you know that are also nar- national park nuts, because uh, we just want to uh, keep sharing with other people. So you know the. The more you're able to share either the podcast, social media, or blog, email, newsletter, that is just all awesome and all uh, means so much to us. So um, that's what we say about, you know, if you're interested in giving back a little bit, um, there's plenty of ways to do that. And... You know, if you're interested in hearing more about what we think about crowdfunding and how we funded our trip and kind of our stance, um, not not really advocating crowdfunding for personal adventures and a little more background into why we take that stance, um, it, there's a post about it on our blog. Yeah, so just which, search Switchback Kids yeah. crowdfunding. Yeah, I just think it's it's an interesting topic, and other people have very different opinions. So that's another one. If you have something different to share, uh, we'd love to hear it. Mm -hmm. His second part of the uh, the second part of his question um, is a really interesting one. So some of the state parks and other areas of the country that we were able to explore and fall in love with during this trip around the around the U.S. So we do have some, we'll go through some state parks first, and then we'll go through some other areas and other things that we stumbled upon. We will say that almost none of our time that we had was dedicated to anything besides national parks. Um, and the time, the extra time we had, we were usually working on blog things. Yeah. So we didn't, we purposely left some things for later. And national parks, in this sense, also included national park sites. Yes. Uh, because we did a lot of those in addition to the national parks. But 
a few state parks peppered in. Yes. Including Bernie Falls. Yep, near Lassen Volcanic. Yeah, that was an incredible um, just waterfall, unlike anything I'd really ever seen before, where the water actually came out. Uh, you know, there's a huge cliff, and the water flows over the top, yes, but then it also flows out from the middle of the cliff. Yeah, it's it, like seeping through all the walls. Yeah. And it's the, one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. Um, it, actually, looking at these, a lot of these are, are waterfall parks. Um, Niagara Falls is a state park in New York. Um, super amazing. Prefer it from the Canada side, actually. The views, as far as the views go. But the experience is really fun from the U.S. side. Also, one of those just, you know, sort of bucket listy things that we were driving past and we figured we needed to stop for a day. And we actually wrote a post on that for avoiding the tourist trap. You know, six ways to do that. Yep. Because there's a lot of stuff you can get sucked into buying. Um, and some of it's worth it and some of it's not. Yep. So we we really loved uh, Niagara Falls, though. Yep, Silver Falls State Park in Oregon was one of another one of our favorite state parks. We it, it's um I believe seven or is it ten ten waterfalls in seven miles? I think that's what it is. Yeah. A seven mile loop where you see ten waterfalls, and it's really easy. It's a really easy trail. It's not huge elevation gain or anything. Just a really beautiful park. And then Tequamanon Falls State Park, again a waterfall, that is in the UP of Michigan. And it's one of those um, that's really unique. This one actually is a very amber color uh, waterfall. And it's maybe the the least impressive out of these falls ones, but definitely if you're up there anyway, yeah, definitely stop, stop by. by because it's a really cool, uh, the acid from the pine trees, I believe, a specific tree, uh, it gets into the water and it makes the, the waterfall all amber colored. Dead Horse Point State Park is on route to... Uh, Island in the Sky, Canyonlands National Park, very close to the entrance there. Definitely worth a stop in itself. It's an extra entrance fee, yes, but some of the views from this state park were rivaled or were even better than in Canyonlands, I thought. So we also did some mountain biking, which is unique because you can't, there, there's not a lot of mountain biking in the national parks. Most biking has to be done on paved roads. So that was a cool experience we got to have at this state park. Also just the views and the visitor center were amazing. Yeah. And let's see, hiking in Oahu. Um, you know, we went to the Valor of the Pacific National Memorial of course, and that was amazing. But the hiking around the island of Oahu itself was really gorgeous, especially the uh, Lanakai Point, I believe it's called, uh, the Pillbox Trail specifically, um, on the north side, the side opposite Honolulu, was um, not the north side. I think the more like east east side. Yeah, opposite Honolulu was really cool um, and a really cool 
kind of um, trail that got you up above the water and and really good views of the the shore. Yeah. Also, Diamond Head was a good one on that um, on Oahu. Yeah, very popular, but yep. worth it. Yep. Uray. Yes. We have a, a Uray, Colorado. We have a Uray and us. We've got a we've got a deep history for, and that should be just another story. But basically. Check it out. We wrote a, a post few years on it. ago. We got stranded. Our car broke down, and we had to we quote unquote had to spend five days in Ure, and we fell it. We absolutely fell in love. We went back when we were when right after we went to Black Canyon of the Gunnison, and fell in love again. It's I think we've deemed it our favorite city in America. Yeah. Period. Yeah, I, I agree. Mark. It's just in, it totally encompassed by ridiculously beautiful mountains and it's got uh, hot springs that come in and feed a really nice pool that you can relax in at night uh, bunches of waterfalls uh, there's an ice festival every winter that I really want to yeah, go that's to on the, that's on the that list. you can do ice climbing at um, so that's Uray O-U-R-A-Y yep Colorado another um Cool, uh, just point of interest, Tucson Desert Museum, which is right near, (coughs) excuse me, Saguaro National Park, and, (coughs) go ahead. And (laughs) that is, it's one of those museums that's just really uh, renowned and has a ton of um, wildlife, but wildlife that's really specific to the desert environment that you probably won't be able to see when you're just walking around saguaro but it's in it's there it's you know it comes out at night or it's hiding in the cacti or wherever it is um but in when it's in the actual museum slash it's really a zoo um when it's in that environment, you can really see these animals and appreciate them um, a lot more. Uh, so that was definitely worth it. It was one of those things where we had to decide, okay, do we really think it's worth the extra $25 a piece and the whole you know, half a day to spend? Um, but it was. Oh, definitely. In contrast, something like... Um, the Seward Sea Life Center in Seward, Alaska seemed like one of those things that was similarly the thing to do, played up and very, you know, wildlife focused. Um, not as big a fan. No, it's kind that. of a womp womp for us, that yeah. one. But the Tucson Desert Museum was a win. So, thumbs up. Banff and Jasper. <laughs> Slightly cheating because they are national parks, but they're not in the U.S. So when we drove to Alaska, of course, we stopped at Banff and Jasper National Parks. And just, I mean, just incredible places. And we don't need to spend too much time talking about them. We also wrote posts about them on our blog. But just no words. I mean, just beautiful. And we had spent a year visiting all the national parks. So we knew beautiful, but this was just I don't know. Incredible. Incredible. Roosevelt and Arapaho, Arapaho uh, National Forests. These are right ne- next to 
in between, really, Boulder and Rocky Mountain National Park. And they are some, uh, we went there over Labor Day. They had some of the most beautiful mountain hikes uh, I've ever done. And they're just national forest lands, so they're not that packed. You can take your dog on them. Um, it's nothing compared to the crowds at Rocky Mountain National Park. And oh, it was just unreal the the types of views you can get to and how quickly you can get to them. Yeah. These weren't long hikes we did. They were like seven miles and you know round trip. And we got, you know, up to 12,500 feet, and, oh, I was just blown away. Of course, this wouldn't be a list without some some that are still on our future plans. So, Antelope Canyon, Monument Valley, The Wave, Havasu Falls, those are the and those are all such a in such a close area right. actually now that I realize and now I'm realizing that, uh, but those are some of the type of things that are still on our U.S. bucket list as far as outdoors adventures go. Right, right, and we might have uh, we might be checking a few of those off in uh, a couple. Well, by the next time we talk to you all, so stay tuned for stay that. Stay extra tuned, guys. <laughs> but in the meantime. Thanks for checking us out today. We'll be back next week with more National Park inspiration. If you enjoyed the podcast, we'd love for you to share us with a friend, give us a rating on iTunes or SoundCloud, or find us on social media at Switchback Kids. And you can always get additional National Parks videos, posts, guides, and more on our blog at switchbackkids.com. Switchbacks out. out.